No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, New York Times horse racing writer Joe Drape explains how the 29 deaths of horses at Santa Anita Racetrack could have been prevented. The thing that's maddening about this for anybody who knows and cares about the sport is this crisis could be ended within a week if America would adopt the international standards that the rest of the world has adopted. And the co-author of a new book reflects back on the 2009 New York Yankees, the last time the Bronx Bombers won the World Series. Who would have known at the time that that's the last time we're going to see Derek Jeter hold the World Series trophy. Same for Mariano Rivera, Andy Pettit, Jorge Posado, but it really turned out to be the beginning of something in the stadium and also the end of something with the core four celebrating for the final time. Plus, podcast producer Andrew Helms discusses the historic 1999 U.S. Women's World Cup Championship team. It's this transformative experience where for the first time, you know, women's pro team had captured the country's imagination and, you know, they were at the White House. They were on the cover of, you know, every magazine, every morning show. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. First, with the Women's World Cup underway in France, we're talking Team USA, which kicked off its tournament with a 13-0 thrashing of Thailand. And we welcome now a reporter on the scene, the great, the one and only, Julie Foudy. Julie, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Jeremy. Julie, I want to talk about um, the controversy at some point in our conversation. But first, before we get to that and before we get to uh, how you're enjoying yourself in France, um, what did we learn about this U.S. women's national team from its performance in its tournament opener against Thailand? We learned they can score a lot of goals, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing, too, is uh, in their in their send off games, like the few games before they were coming over here, they were struggling a little bit offensively. So um, part of me thinks it was in reaction to them being the last first game to kick off. They were in the last group, and they've been waiting and they've been watching, and they literally had all this. <laughs> every time I'd see them in town in our little cute town of Ronce, they they were like, oh my gosh, we can't re- we can't wait to get going. So maybe it was a little pent up energy that they needed to get out and thirteen goals worth of it. If this team doesn't end up winning the whole thing again for the second consecutive tournament, also after having reached the finals eight years ago against Japan, what is going to hold this team back, Julie? Hmm, I, I would say probably the one area that is still a question mark when they play tougher teams. Obviously you don't see it against a team like Thailand, but their back line against better teams this year has been uncharacteristically leaky and a little bit vulnerable. They gave up three goals to Australia, three goals to France. They actually lost three, one to France in January in France. So, and that's atypical of course of this U S team. And they have, and they also have a, a new goalkeeper in, um, with Hope Solo being gone and Alyssa Nair, who has never played a World Cup minute, although she has been on a World Cup squad. So I would say the one area of vulnerability for this team is probably the back line and 
a listener. But having said that, it's all relative, right? Comparatively, um, this is a really good U.S. team. Mm. We're speaking with... The great Julie Foudy, the World Cup champion herself. She's the host of the Laughter Permitted podcast for ESPN Audio, where Julie interviews many of the biggest names in sports. Uh, and it's always, it's always a pleasure talking soccer with you. Uh, we, we got to cover together the Euros three years ago, uh, in France, which was, uh, a great tournament, a great thrill for me to, uh, to get a chance to work with you, um, you know, four years ago, there were some breakthrough stars for the U.S. Uh, you know, the, the, the team played very well. Uh, I guess Julie Johnson was, was one of the breakthrough stars of the tournament. Who, who, who do you see emerging as a household name in women's soccer this time around from the U.S. team? Yeah. So Jeremy, when, when the U.S. lost in the Olympics in 2016 and they went out the earliest they ever have. A lot of people forget that, you know, after them winning the World Cup, they had this crash at the Olympics where they lost to Sweden in the quarterfinals. Coach Jill Ellis said, gosh, the one thing we need is we need more creative offensive types in midfield especially. And so the young players that are in their first World Cup, who actually did super well in that Thailand game, um, which was great for the team, are that she brought in are Rose Lavelle, who's a young kid from Cincinnati, and – Lindsay Horan, who actually played for PSG here in Paris for many years when she graduated from high school rather than go to college. Um, and and then you saw Sam Mewis as well, who is someone who put in two goals uh, and is in her first World Cup. So you had five goals coming from that midfield three who were all in their first World Cup <laughs> and had a swagger to them, you know, that, that felt like they were in their fourth World Cup. I was like, look at those guys. Uh, and, and I think that's a great sign for the United States because they have some young, creative, energetic players that can break down compact defenses, which we see in the U.S. have some problems with. The reaction to um, to the drubbing and to the way the U.S. team celebrated has been mixed. Obviously, some people saying they're in the World Cup. Uh, let them celebrate. Have fun. This is as big as it gets. That's it. Others saying scoring that many goals, that's totally appropriate and expected in a tournament in which goal differential matters. Um, and others saying they went overboard. Um, what, and, and, and you're around this team every day. You know, you know these players. What were your thoughts when you saw what was happening on the field? I, I fall into the camp of score as many goals as you can. It's not a friendly, right? It's not one of those meaningless games where, you know, you get to 8 nil and you're like, yeah, okay, maybe we should start playing one and two touch and passing around. This is the World Cup goal differential matter, matters, right? So, obviously, you, you don't want to stop and then all of a sudden you look back and go, oh, but Sweden scored two more than us because they kept pouncing and we didn't. Um, so I don't mind the goal line, but the thing that I actually, when I was watching, I was like, really at 13 when Alex scores her fifth goal, we're doing a whole team celebration on the sideline and dancing. I don't, I don't get that. Right. Um, I don't get, you know, Megan Rapino, a veteran of the team sliding in at nine goals to the bench side. So, I don't mind Mallory Pugh in her first ever World Cup, you know, giving a fist pump. And there's celebration and then there's over-the-top celebration. And so that was my take on it is like, yeah, you want to keep pressing and you want to keep playing and scoring. 
But don't do a whole dance routine on the sideline at goal number 13. I don't think that's a good look. The team, um, you know, I saw your interview with Alex Morgan uh, the morning after where she um, she defended the celebrations, but uh, didn't seem to have any problems with it or any regrets. Um, can you characterize uh, how the rest of the team felt, you know, having some time to reflect on on what happened? You know, there's part of me that loves that they're not like, well, yeah, you know, we maybe got a little carried away. They're not apologizing at all. I loved, actually, Alex Morgan's interview. It was like, no, it's the World Cup. We're going to celebrate. I'm going to celebrate Sam Mewis getting her first World Cup. I'm going to celebrate Mal Pugh. Um, so I did like that. And what you're hearing from them is, look, this is, this is part of the fabric of this team. These are the habits we've created over you know, decades of winning World Cups, and this is what makes us so good. And we wanted to make a statement, and we wanted to show the world that we're not here just to defend a World Cup title. We're here to attack a World Cup title, which is a theme you hear often from them. So, and I get that, right? And I love that about the American mentality, because I do think that's what separates us from other teams. Um but again, I think there's a point where you're like, okay, do we need to be sliding in and doing dances at 13, right? Um, and, and that's, you know, and yet they're owning it. And I think that's the right thing to do. We're speaking with uh, the great Julie Foudy about the Women's World Cup taking place now in France. And, you know, one of the things um, over the years that people in the American soccer community, if you will, have talked about is getting to a point of maturity in our appreciation as a nation for the game, which for so long belonged to the rest of the world in a way that we could be critical of our national teams. And it wasn't um, considered some kind of heresy, you know, that, you know, <laughs> there was for a long time on the men's side, especially, you know, it's like it, it, boosterism was uh, the order of the day. And does this reflect a growing kind of maturity about soccer in the U.S. in some way? Is that one way to look at it, that we're having this kind of discussion about the women's national team? Yeah, it's a great point, actually. I remember when, I think it was the 2011 or 2015 World Cup, it was probably 2015, and um, I remember talking to Abby Wambach, and uh, I said, hey, look, you know, uh, me criticizing you is my job, right? And you, you have to be able to understand this is what I'm going to do. Like, and that that means to me, that and when other people are criticizing you, that it matters. And in my day, for example, Jeremy, back in the 90s and early 2000s, we would be like, please criticize us because it means you're paying right. attention. <laughs> oh, my God, we would love for you to actually criticize us. Um, and I said, you know, we were begging for that attention. So please make the team understand that this is a great thing and not to get so bent out of shape about it and not to take it so personally. And so she'd have those conversations with the team. And I, and I totally agree. I mean, I think it's a great sign that we're having this debate. Um, and it's a great sign for the growth of women's soccer, hopefully. We're speaking with Julie Foudy about the Women's World Cup. Julie, before we let you go and get back to your, to your wine and your creme caramel and your cheese course and i know you're over there with Watalka. you're probably having a would, good time so i would never do that never you would never uh, uh now i'm thinking tart tatan there's so many <laughs> options um chili the u.s is playing chili on sunday uh and uh what should we expect well you know interestingly enough probably thailand and chile are two of the easier teams at this world cup and and so for 
um, you know, we always we always pick a group of death at every World Cup, and I always say, you know, well, this is Group F for the USA is like the group of life uh, because you have two of the easiest teams in the World Cup in, in Thailand, which we saw, and now Chile, although they are more organized, but it will be a larger score again, I think. Um, I don't think 13, uh, but probably more about four or five. Uh, and but the the real game comes down to to Sweden, their third game, because they're the ones who knocked them out of the the Olympics in 2016, and they're a legitimate team. So if if the U.S. finishes first in their group, they then most likely will go on to face France in the quarterfinal in Paris. And as we've been talking about our World Cup, France is really one of the biggest contenders, I think, for the U.S. at this World Cup, if not the biggest. I think they're actually the favorites over the United States as hosts. Julie, it is always a pleasure. Thank you for letting us interrupt you at dinner hour in France. Uh, <laughs> it, it is a sacrifice. Um, Julie Foudy is the host of the Laughter Permitted podcast, and it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Julie, uh, have fun in France, and we hope we can uh, lean on you a few more times before the tournament's over. Always, Jeremy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. It's been a tumultuous year in thoroughbred racing. And to tell us what has been going on, not only in the Triple Crown season, but also most notably at Santa Anita Park, where there have been nearly 30 horse deaths since the beginning of the meeting in December, we welcome the one and only Joe Drape of the New York Times, who's been following everything in horse racing now for for many decades, and has been um, and has been on the Santa Anita story in particular uh, recently. Joe, thanks for being with us. Um, what's going on at Santa Anita? Does does anybody know what is causing all of these deaths? Well, Jeremy, there's several factors going on here. And, uh, you know, put them all together, there's a bit of a perfect storm. What started in January and February was the worst rain, the unseasonably cold out in Southern California. That's when these fatalities started mounting. But then since then, it's just sort of been a comedy of errors. And that comedy is probably a tragedy of errors right here. Uh, they shut the track down a couple times, came back. Again, these things happen. I said, so, you know, what I think has happened here is the weather started it. The fact that they have inexpensive horses there at a racetrack that uh, Tim Ritvo, the head of that Santa Anita, was sent out there to make it more profitable. I think he had some strong arm management tactics going on to get horses out there running when they should have not probably been in the barn. And then, you know, the ongoing story that you and I have talked to over the decades is the drug culture. And, you know, the drug culture is two, two factors. One is, you know, the minority, but a significant minority who use everything from Viagra to human growth hormone to get an edge to win a race to the second over-medication, which almost everybody is guilty of. And it's the equivalent of the linebacker shooting his knee with a quarter-zone shot to play the game. Uh, this goes on. There's less horses. You know, when I started this, Jeremy, there were 35,000 foals born a year. Now there's 19,000. There's more racing, more everyday racing. Well, why is that? Why? I mean, I, I, I've, I've been reading your reporting, Joe. We're speaking with Joe Drape of the New York Times about the crisis. And I think that's the right word that's going on right now in this country in thoroughbred racing. 
Why are we going from 35,000 to 19,000 foals? Well, part of it is interest. Part of it is market demand. Uh, you know, they're not selling for $4 million in the sales ring anymore, when it, the, which was the case from the go-go 80s to the mid-aughts. Uh, you know, the recession cooled that market a little bit. And then there's serious questions about what we've done to the breed over the generations. Uh, we breed for speed on the dirt. And that is not what the rest of the world values. Every other jurisdiction pretty much is predominantly grass racing on the turf. So, you know, what what has happened is we've kind of become uh, victims of our own success. And that has dwindled not only the full crop, the interest, uh, you know, handles down. You, you know, 10 years ago, $16 billion was spent a year. Now we're down to 11 And, you know, this has all become sort of a fight for survival. And part of it just lays on the industry. They've known this was going on for 50 years at least, Jeremy. I'm looking at congressional testimony from the 70s and 80s that lay out these same concerns. I've been to three on my own. And, you know, they need to address this, and they haven't. And they got bad luck. I mean, horses die. I mean, your, your listeners should know, yes, 29 at Santa Anita, but conservative estimates is 500 a year. And when we did our series in 2012, we found 2,500. 500 a year around the country, you're saying? Around the country. And, you know, that's not including training accidents and, and fatalities. So, you know, the thing that's maddening about this for anybody who knows and cares about the sport is this crisis could be ended within a week if America would adopt the international standards that the rest of the world has adopted. Basically, their death rate is two and a half to five times less than ours. And that's because there's no race day drugs. There is checks on what kind of painkillers can be administered and when. Uh, there's just more sense of the horse as an athlete, not as a commodity. And, you know, wrap your mind around this, Jeremy. Last year in Japan, 41 horses died. That's the whole country. That's over months of race dates and we've got 30 in Santa Anita. So, you know, there is a solution out there. They've kicked it down the road for 40, 50 years. And now they literally have a gun to their head for their survival. I mean, people do know out there that all it takes is 600,000 signatures on a petition and you can get a ballot initiative that will very simply ask, should horse racing exist? And out there right now, the public sentiment is, no, it should not exist. Speaking with Joe Drape of the New York Times. And, and Joe, you know, um, myself as someone who only very occasionally kind of, you know, dips his toe into the world of horse racing coverage. You know, one thing you're always told, though, is how much the people in the sport love these animals, how much they respect them. Um, so so there's a disconnect there, you know, in a sport in which, um, in which they worship these thoroughbreds, or or that's what we've always been told. Why are they allowing them uh, to be destroyed this way, to die this way? When you're saying simple changes could save their lives. Well, the sport of kings was called the sport of kings because it was the pastime of the very rich and the royals. Uh, they weren't doing this for a business. They were doing it for sport. 
Now it's a business. And yes, they love their animals. But at the same time, NFL owners may love their players and their teams, but they make sure those guys suit up and give them every, you know, medical advantage edge that you could do. It's a business, Jeremy, pure and simple. And they can say they love them, and I doubt, don't doubt many of them do. But I've seen too many necropsies and transcripts of hearings that say they knew a horse was hurt. They put him out there anyway, and he had a pre-existing injury. Uh, you know, they need to make money. To, and this is not just the trainers and the horsemen. It goes up and down the chain. The track wants to have full fields and have more bets on these full fields. The state wants their tax revenues. So they they benefit if there's full fields and more money bet. Uh, you know, what's happened now is you've got 38 different jurisdictions and everybody's going their own way. And so the system is ripe for abuse and it has been abused. Go Drape on the sad state of affairs and the tragic state of affairs right now. Horse racing in the United States. No one covers the sport uh, more intelligently than Joe Drape. Uh, Joe, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us again here on The Sporting Life. Jeremy, thanks for having me. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. In 2009, the New York Yankees won their 27th World Series title. It's the last time they won the World Series, something Yankee fans certainly didn't expect back then, something they never expect to go a decade without winning a championship. That championship, which was unique in many aspects, is the subject of a new book, Mission 27, a new boss, a new ballpark, and one last ring for the Yankees' core four, written by longtime MLB.com writers Mark Feinsand and Brian Hoke. Brian joins us now here on The Sporting Life. Brian, thank you for being with us. Of course, Jeremy. Good to be on with you. Brian, it seems like a long time ago, uh, that first season in the new Yankee Stadium, that world championship with Alex Rodriguez and Derek Jeter and CeCe Sabathia and so many others. Um, what, why, um, why did you want to write a, a full analysis of that season in this book, Mission 27? Yeah, in a lot of ways, it... It does feel like it's been a long time, but it also feels kind of like it happened yesterday. I mean, those memories are so fresh for me and, and for Mark as well. We were both on the beat that year. Uh, he's with for the Daily News and uh, me for MLB.com. And so I, I think that, you know, as we started talking about a project that we could work together on, 2009 kept coming up in our minds. And um, I, I think it's a year that was underappreciated at the time, but just because there was so much going on, the Yankees closed the old Yankee stadium at the end of 2008. They move across the street. Uh, they build this new $1.5 billion cathedral. And it, it was, there was a lot going on there. It, it just the ballpark alone could probably fill a book and, and the transition of all that history and how it moved across the street. But then the Yankees go and they have this massive spending spree. They had just missed the postseason. Uh, for the first time in uh, more than a decade, they they go out, they get CC Sabathia, AJ Burnett, Mark Teixeira, the three biggest free agents who were on the market that year. Uh, it, it really is the last gasp of the George Steinbrenner Yankees spending big to go get a championship, and they followed through and uh, they made a, a very smart trade for Nick Swisher. Um, and I, I just think that was a fun team to be around and and probably underappreciated at the time because, as we talk about in the book. You, you thought 
that wasn't going to be it. You, who would have known at the time that that's the last time we're going to see Derek Jeter hold the World Series trophy? Same for Mariano Rivera, Andy Pettit, Jorge Posado. None of us knew it was going to be their last at the time. You figured they were going to continue to win for for years and years, and uh, they'd keep that dynasty going. But it really turned out to be uh, the beginning of something in the stadium and also the end of something with the core four celebrating for the final time. We're speaking with Brian Hoke, who's been covering the Yankees for a very long time for MLP.com. His new book written with Mark Feinsand is Mission 27, a new boss, new ballpark, and one last ring for the Yankees core four. And when you speak of a new boss, of course, you mean Joe Girardi. You don't mean there's only one boss uh, per se. What did it mean to that team to have that that change in the manager, manager's position after 13 years with Joe Torre, how did that change the dynamics of the clubhouse? There's actually dual meaning there because, right, a new boss in Girardi taking over Torre, and that first year didn't go great for Joe Girardi in 2008, but uh, more so I think that refers to Hal Steinbrenner taking over, Hal and Hank Steinbrenner at the time taking over. Uh, you know, George, has, has, as we detail in the book, his health had been fading for for a few years there, and his famous quote was, it's time to let the young elephants into the tent. So we really detail how that power transition took place, how gradually Hal and Hank wound up making those decisions. And so uh, even though George Steinbrenner in 2009 is the the principal owner, and he remained so until his passing in 2010, uh, that that's the first year that Hal and Hank are really making all of the decisions. And so those big free agent signings came from Hal Steinbrenner's desk, and uh, directed through Brian Cashman. So we go into uh, just how different that was. It was a much less chaotic front office um, at the time. You know, uh, the, the Steinbrenner years of the 70s and 80s really thrived on turmoil, and, and people were getting fired left and right, and um, you never knew when the shoe was going to drop, and there'd be screaming matches. We then Brian Cashman talks about uh, the screaming matches that he had with George Steinbrenner. That's not the case anymore with the Yankees. They're more um, inclined to run it as a business. They're very thoughtful. Um, you know, Hal Steinbrenner, a pilot, always talks about uh, viewing things from 30,000 feet and really operating that way and delegating. So uh, very different. Then in the clubhouse, yeah, very different uh, as well. I think that Girardi brought that kind of militaristic attitude. You know, he had the, the close crop buzz cut. Um, and, and I think it was what was needed at that time for the team. They had gotten a little lax under Joe Torre, and, and Torre had, had obviously won so much, four out of five World Series, but they hadn't won in a while, and I think that um, then the message gets stale. And, and as we'd see later on in Girardi's tenure, I think that happened as well. He was the right man at the right time for that team. Uh, maybe that didn't turn out to be the case later on, as Mark Teixeira details in the book, but for 2009, that team really responded to him. He was uh, very hands-on with the players. And to this day, I, I'm surprised that he's not in the major league dugout because if I had a team, I'd hire Joe Girardi. I think he's he's so well-prepared and analytically minded and, uh, you know, he'll manage somewhere as soon as he uh, as soon as he wants to, and the right opportunity pops up. And Brian, of course, the farther this last championship recedes into the rearview mirror, the larger it looms in the collective memories of Yankees fans. If it turns out that, you know, it's not the Yankees' birthright to win a World Series every 10 years, and of course, under the ownership of George Steinbrenner, which I, I have to say a lot of people forget, the Yankees went, what, from 1978 till 1996 without winning a title, 18 years. Um, how much bigger does this team loom in everybody's uh, 
nostalgic memories of great Yankees teams? Well, I, I can only speak for us in that uh, when we were doing the research and digging back into the stuff that we wrote on the beat in 2009, it was so much fun because there are so many little nuggets and stories that you forget. And, I mean, it was a fun journey. This team, it, it was not a steamroll to the World Series championship, even though they won 103 games. And then everybody remembers the World Series against Philadelphia, how they won in six games. But uh, there's a lot of drama in that season, especially – uh, with Alex Rodriguez having his, that's the first time we find out about his performance enhancing drug use. And then he's got a career threatening hip injury that um, he said the first thing he did was Google Bo Jackson. And then he thought his career might be over. And then he comes back and hits a home run on the first pitch he sees and winds up having a fantastic postseason. Uh, I think that um, there was, there were so many other aspects of that team and and whether it was walk-off victories and the the pies that aj burnett is smashing into guys faces i think that um at the time uh you, like i said earlier you didn't really appreciate it because you figured this was just going to be the first of many and that you bring all these great players together and they're, they're clearly going to win but uh that wound up being hideki matsui's final year he went out fantastically in the world series wound up being the world series mvp johnny damon's farewell in pinstripes uh, the team changed in 2010 and 2011 and 2012, even though you had still the, the Jeters and the Mariano Rivera's and Jorge Posada until he retired. And uh, then Andy Pettit, you know, it was almost like the last time you had the whole gang together. And uh, I think that's what was so much fun for Mark and myself, putting this together and, and chasing these guys down and saying some of them are still in the game, but a lot of them are not. Uh, what are you doing now, nine, 10 years later? And, uh, to me, it felt a lot like going to your high school reunion and, and catching up with guys that you hadn't seen in a while and, and really uh, just kind of telling those old stories. And, and the best part about it was the guys' guards were down, um, much less so than when they were active players. They were willing to share much more from that season, and uh, I think that definitely comes through in the book. And, of course, everything uh, changed in another respect in 2010 when George Steinbrenner died. Brian Hoke's new book, written with Mark Feinsand, a terrific look back at the 2009 Yankees, is Mission 27. Brian, it's always a pleasure speaking to you here on The Sporting Life. Thanks for having joined us. You got it, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And we've already discussed the Women's World Cup, which is taking place now in France. 20 years after that remarkable breakthrough performance by the U.S. Women's National Team winning the World Cup in 1999, transforming so many members of the team into household names. Their story and the aftermath of that victory is the subject of a new 30 for 30 podcast Back Pass, and we are joined now by the reporter, writer, creator of Back Pass, Andrew Helms. Andrew, thank you for being with us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. We had Julie Foudy on in the first segment uh, talking about what's going on right now in France. Uh, she's a big part, obviously, of any story about what happened 20 years ago in the U.S., but if you would... Um, you would take us back into time, give us a sense, frame it in the context of what was going on that summer, how big a deal it was when Brandy Chastain scored that penalty. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's hard to remember all these years later just how monumental the 99 World Cup was. But, you know, I remember 
uh, I was in middle school at the time, and you know, every kid in the neighborhood gathered in my parents' living room to oh, watch. Great. Oh, great. You were in middle school. I, I was 30 years old. I was an ESPN reporter. I'm doing exactly <laughs> now what I was doing then, but go on. It's all right. Show off. Yeah. So I was, yeah, in middle school, and I remember, you know, my sister was a few years older, and I remember, you know, the way she and her friends looked up to those players, the way I looked up to those players, um, and talking to, you know, Julie Foudy. And talking to Brian Escurry, those on the team, you know, they had been kind of laboring in darkness for years, right? They won the World Cup in 91. No one paid attention. And then finally, you know, they, Julie tells the story of getting on the bus, going to Giant Stadium for the first game, and they're sitting bogged down in traffic. And suddenly they realize the traffic is fans. You know, people are coming to see them. And so it's this transformative experience where, where for the first time, you know, women's pro sports, a women's pro team, had captured the country's imagination. And, you know, the aftermath of 99, it just snowballed. There were, you know, they were at the White House. They were on the cover of, you know, every magazine, every morning show. And that gave them this, this, uh, this platform where they started saying, you know, what can we do next? What can we do to kind of build on this momentum and have a lasting impact to grow the game, not just for us, but for future generations? And that's where the seeds of, of building the first women's pro league started. Uh, the WUSA, which is what Backpass, the, the podcast, is all about. We're speaking with Andrew Helms about Backpass, his new 30 for 30 podcast. And, and so the assumption um, in the giddy moments and days and weeks after that tremendous win for the United States women's national team was that this was something to be built upon. What went wrong? It's a great question. Um, you know, I think to take you back, you know, everyone's kind of in those, I always would say the heady days of 99, you know, we're in this moment where it seems as if nothing can go wrong. You've got, you know, Mia Hamm is a celebrity star in commercials with Michael Jordan, you know, they have, you have these huge famous athletes and then bringing that together, the, the investor group was star studded. You had the founder of the league was John Hendricks, the visionary behind the Discovery Channel. He was watching the World, the World Cup with his family, and he's kind of you know, motivated, and he's got a young daughter, a soccer-playing daughter, and thinks this is such a transformative thing for her. She should have, you know, these, these players deserve a, a platform to play the game week in and week out. And he reaches out to the founders of, uh, to, of Time Warner, of Continental Cable Vision, of Comcast. You know, the biggest names in cable TV in the country were investing in women's pro soccer because, you know, at the time, as one of the investors said, you know, it wasn't unreasonable to think that uh, women could be the face of soccer in America and not men. And that was going to be what pro soccer in America was. Um, but to get to your question of what went wrong, I think it was partially that, that hubris that they, they weren't as conscious on the budget side as they needed to be in those first few years. And they spent way too much money in their first year. We tell a story in the in the podcast of, of, you know, they're sitting around the boardroom in the middle of the first season. And, you know, Julie Foudy told us it was the, she was on the board and it was the come to Jesus meeting because they looked at the, the budget and they realized, oh, my God, we budgeted $40 million for five years and all the money is gone midway through season one. And that was a moment where they realized that these projections of, you know, we're going to have a pro league. It's going to start turning money in three to five years. Um, it's going to make a profit. That's where I think they started to realize like, oh man, this is going to cost way more. And that's where, you know, to get to the question of what went wrong, you get to the second piece of it, which is how much does it cost to start a pro league? How, how long should your timeline be if you're going to build something from scratch? And that's where you, if you compare to say major league soccer, the men's league, 
after five years, they were $250 million in the hole. You know, the, the women's league after three years was $100 million in the hole. So kind of in, in comparable situations and in, in, in arguably in somewhat of a better financial picture. And what was the difference is that Major League Soccer had a few billionaires who were ready to step up and say, we want to we have a 20, 30 year timeline and we're going to see this through. And that for whatever reasons, and we can get into them, hasn't been the case on the women's side. There hasn't been a willingness from investors to lose money over 10, 20, 30 years to build the fan base, to build the audience that'll make a women's pro soccer league successful in this country. We haven't seen a women's professional soccer league succeed at the level it has in some other countries here in the U.S. What did the WUSA experiment back in 99 tell us about what it will take? The thing that the WSA had was, you know, you had the celebrity stars of 99. You had, you know, all these components. You had these big name cable investors. It seemed like the alchemy was right. You had, you had the right pieces in the water. Um, but the, the missing ingredient was time. I remember the, one of the GMs told us, uh, she was Katie Button, who was the, the general manager of the, the Washington Freedom. It was this July game in the third season. The Philly Charge were playing the Washington Freedom. And some, somewhere in the middle of the second half, Mia Hamm tripped a player on the Philadelphia team. And the Philly fans just started booing Mia Hamm. And she was she was shocked, right? right? American soccer fans were booing Mia Hamm. But in her mind, she thought, that's what we need to develop. We need it so that you're not just a fan of Julie Foudy and, and Mia Hamm when they put on a national team kit. We need you to become a fan of the Philadelphia Charge. We need you to become a fan of um, the San Diego Spirit where Julie Foudy played. And that those relationships take time. You know, I think kind of a personal story, my dad, Never watched soccer growing up, but as I got into it as, a, as, as I got older, we grew up in D.C., he's now becoming a D.C. United fan. But it took, you know, he didn't become a fan right when that team started. It's now only, you know, 20 years into that team, his son's a, a fan of the sport. He's starting to become a fan of that sport, too. And those, I think that's kind of how fandom is a thing that's passed down, right? And we need to give these, these things time to, to grow. And that's what's been so great about what, what those investors have done for Major League Soccer is they've given it the time and space to breathe and grow and become a viable league. And that's that's what's needed on the women's side of the game, too. The way it ended for the WUSA, you know, all the recriminations, all of the uh, ways in which people realized it had uh, not been handled um, the best possible way. Would people look at the WUSA experiment then and say, I don't want any part of this? Yeah, actually, I talked to um, some folks who were involved in the second iteration of, of women's pro soccer, and they said it was really hard to get investors um, the second time around because they'd say, well, we tried women's pro soccer. It didn't work out. Um, and so that was kind of a, a recurring theme of getting that, that investor group that's willing to lose money over a period of time when the narrative had been built up that this thing doesn't succeed. When in reality, if you, you know, we have the budgets, we looked at all the numbers, by the final season, they were they were pretty close to breaking even in a few markets. There were a few teams that really needed overhauls. Um, it's it's a story of like any league, you know, it was working in a few places, it wasn't working in a few others. They needed to retool and learn and learn from their mistakes. Uh, but yeah, that's the 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 challenge is just you need you you're never going to get it right the first time. You know, no no pro league has a you know come out of the gates and and, and figured it out. And it's it's taken that longitudinal investment to 
to make it work. Andrew Holmes's new 30 for 30 podcast is Back Pass, the fascinating story of the 1999 U.S. Women's National Team, its victory at the World Cup, and then its subsequent efforts to build professional soccer for women here in the U.S. Andrew, it's really been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us on The Sporting Life. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. Tune in again next weekend. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern time.